defund police? Is that nuts? Who's going to protect us from the bad guys? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I don't know about you, but every day without fail, I am shocked by words from President Trump. This quote is from Wednesday, July 22nd. He said, in recent weeks, there's been a radical movement to defund, dismantle, and dissolve our police departments. Extreme politicians have joined this anti-police crusade and relentlessly vilified our law enforcement heroes. To look at it from any standpoint, the effort to shut down policing in their own communities has led to a shocking explosion of shootings, killings, murders, and heinous crimes of violence. This bloodshed must end. This bloodshed will end. End of quote from our dear president. Many years ago, when I was running for office, a good friend, uh, Unitarian Minister Bob Carnan, said, Bert, there's only two things that work in politics, fear and reassurance. Though he died a long time ago, his words may be more applicable today than at any time I can remember. In the wake of the police murder of George Floyd, a killing in which every moment was witnessed by millions, there have been calls to defund the police. And many on the far right who enthusiastically seek to transform America into a dictatorial police state, no exaggeration, they've picked up this phrase and are using it very effectively to stoke the flames of fear. What does defund police mean? Of course, it's not what Trump says it is. We all know he only speaks in lies. But don't we really need police? Even people on the left of the political spectrum have expressed fear of defunding police. How can we keep people from doing bad, violent things if we defund? What would America look like? Would it not just be chaos and anarchy? Well, in a new article titled Community Peacemakers Offer a Proven Alternative, Loretta Graceffo addresses some of the fears. Loretta Graceffo, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me. Loretta Graceffo is a senior at St. Peter's University studying journalism and social justice. A lot of money to be made there, right? She's also a correspondent for Waging Nonviolence, where she reports on social movements She's an intern with Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, a progressive media watchdog group that I hope you've heard of. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Loretta. As journalist Bryce Covert writes, defunding police is not just a slogan. Out of the protest movement has come a surge of organizing to push city councils to shift money out of bloated police budgets and into starved social services. And activists are already seeing some concrete successes. L.A. Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti walked back a proposed increase for his uh, police department and proposed a $150 million cut instead. Lawmakers in 15 other cities have made similar pledges. End of uh, quote. The entire world was horrified at the end of May when George Floyd was killed by police. And what made it truly unique was that it was all recorded and millions witnessed every horrible second. 
No doubt there have been thousands of other cases like it that occurred before the new technology. Police have such tools for violence, and it hasn't been reported before. Everyone knows the name George Floyd, but now we may forget the reason why he was stopped. We may not remember the names of Rayshard Brooks or Elijah McClain, but please remind us, Loretta, of the circumstances of their deaths. And when you do, what realistic alternatives were there to what the police did in those tragic cases? Well, George Floyd was stopped because he was suspected of using a counterfeit $20 bill, which ended with a cop kneeling on his neck for almost nine minutes. Um, In the case of Rayshard Brooks, he was reported for falling asleep in his car in a Wendy's drive-thru while he was intoxicated. Um, There was a confrontation with police. He tried to take their taser and the police shot and killed him. In the case of Elijah McClain, he was reported for looking suspicious, supposedly, which is already questionable. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He ended up being tackled by police, put in a chokehold, injected with ketamine. Um, You know, this whole time he's sobbing, begging for his life, vomiting, and eventually he dies in the hospital after being in a coma. So when we talk about defunding the police, we're talking about I think, creating a world where these situations could have ended differently and lives could have been saved. So how can we get closer to a world where maybe a community member arrives to mediate the conflict between George Floyd and the shopkeeper? How can we uh, build a world where Rayshard Brooks is maybe given a ride home and, you know, uh, punished in some way for driving drunk instead of being killed? Why wasn't Elijah McLean, you know, maybe asked how he was doing and then left alone. But all of these people were approached by numerous officers who were armed and treated like a threat. So I think that when it comes to alternatives to policing, it's about imagining a world where community members are called in rather than like what essentially amounts to an occupying army. And also imagining a world where all of these people could still be alive and with their families who love them. Yeah, really. Of course, the word imagine, you know, John Lennon notwithstanding, you know, that's not reality right now. But what you describe, you know, somebody giving uh, Rayshard Brooks a ride home or somebody in the store intervening with George Floyd, (laughs) those are not unrealistic possibilities. It's just that, uh, and I even wonder about, you know, watching that uh, horrible video that nobody will ever forget if the police would have even allowed somebody to intervene my guess is no they wouldn't but that's we're getting to the to the uh crux of the problem here and you know for many decades we have linked the word punishment with crime now of course to keep the peace and security of all citizens we must we have to effectively address crime and violence so tell us please about the institute for nonviolent chicago the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago, when and why, and by whom was it founded? And while you're answering all that, what are its goals? Tell us about that, please. Um, So yeah, the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago is an organization in Chicago. Um, Their goal is to end the cycle of gun violence through mediating conflict and uh, building relationships with at-risk individuals. 
And so a lot of the people who work for them are formerly incarcerated people or former gang members. Most of them grew up in the communities that they're now working in, and they've dedicated their lives to like living out Dr. King's principles of nonviolence. And um, the Institute was founded in 2015 by this guy, Tenny Gross. Um, he spent a lot of his life studying Dr. King's principles in the practice of nonviolence. And he was kind of intimately acquainted with violence because mm. his fa- he had family members that had died in the Holocaust. And he also had been in the Israeli Defense Force. And so he kind of understood it as both a victim and a perpetrator. Mm. And so, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, that that's that's interesting. It's good to have both of those points of view. I think that, that lends, unfortunately, a lot of credibility. And it sounds like one of those things where you don't choose the life you live, but it sort of chooses for you. And, and that's uh, being done. And obviously, America's police are asked to do a lot more and more, it seems, every year. And as such, we keep funding them more and more each passing year. They deal with homeless people. They often intercede in domestic violence situations, and their visible presence serves to reinforce order. You know, we don't need to see the violence to know that they can do it. So that sort of keeps us all in line. At this unique moment of our history, we seem to be asking how well it really works. What does the Institute do that has worked to defuse such conflicts? Um, So I think that it can look like a lot of different things, but it's always rooted in like reaching out to people, building relationships with them and meeting them where they are, where they are. So I'd like to give an example. Um, one of the outreach workers told me this story that just happened at one of the recent protests in Chicago. And there was this shooting after a group of people like stole a TV from a family's van and someone in the family got grazed and the car also got grazed with bullets. So now they're stranded um, and the family has guns. They're really panicked. They're mm. kind of like ready to shoot anyone that comes their way. But the outreach workers were able to calm them down. They bring them to their office. They speak to them for like two hours and they give them a ride home. Hmm. And throughout all of this, I think is really notable is that even when they insert themselves in like these, you know, potentially very dangerous situations, they don't carry guns and they also don't wear bulletproof vests. Mm-hmm. They believe like, look, you know, um, many of them are former gang members. So they've tried using weapons and police have also tried using weapons and Weapons can't be depended on, you know, in their view, to prevent violence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, it reminds me of, you know, arming teachers. What could go wrong? You know, lots of kids <laughs> in the class. Oh, uh, uh, my goodness. Spraying bullets around. <laughs> you know, adding Absolutely. violence to violence. Just, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But, I don't know. It's been that way for so many years, and we've just accepted it so deeply that now it's this is like the first time it's ever really been even started to be questioned now police budgets often represent a large percentage of municipal budgets school budgets are normally the highest as i think they should be and i wonder if there's been any measure comparing increased police budgets to reduction in crime you know keeping spending on police intact or even increasing it can often mean sharp reductions elsewhere. So just from a fiscally conservative point of view, what about this pattern? Um, 
Yeah, so there have been studies looking at increased police spending and whether it lowers crime rates. And it's kind of hard to analyze because there's like a lot of factors at play. Um, The Washington Post recently did one of state and local police budgets over the past 60 years, and they didn't really find a correlation between a higher budget and lower crime rates. And I think also, um, you know, when we talk about like lower crime rates, reducing crime, what does that mean? Does that mean just moving people involved in crime into prisons and then sort of throwing them away, exploiting them for free labor? Uh, You know, I don't think that's really a solution, especially we're seeing how devastating that approach has been Um, in Chicago right now. One in six of the coronavirus cases in the city can be traced back to Cook County Jail. Mm. So when we look at costs, let's look at the human costs as well. Human costs are absolutely significant. And I got to tell you, when I was in the state Senate in 1990 to 2004, there were budget issues that came up building a new prison, like a new prison for women, updating an old prison. I didn't feel good about voting for it, but there was no other option at the time. There was no other option. When you drive by these places and you see the the razor wire and the high walls, it's like, how is that going to rehabilitate somebody? You know, is that a correctional correctional institute? I, I just, there hasn't been any other option. So this is a perhaps a unique, very optimistic, perhaps, moment in history. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Loretta Graceffo, uh, who's uh, got a new article, Community Peacemakers Offer a Proven Alternative. She's with uh, Waging Nonviolence uh, and uh, writes or, or works with uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. There is a lot of fear and confusion about the word defund. The Trump team must have been thrilled to have that word thrown at them because they knew they could you know, gin up the fear. What does it really mean, defund police? Um, yeah, so I think uh, when we talk about defund the police, we're obviously talking about cutting the budget of police. Right. But it's also like, uh, like you mentioned, it's sort of an uh, incomplete sentence. And I think the full sentence would yeah. probably be defund the police and invest that money in the people. Uh-huh. So. What that means is give that money to street outreach like Nonviolence Chicago. Give the money to schools and mental health services and affordable housing and, you know, initiatives like community courts because these all reduce crime in the long run. And that, I would think, is the goal to reduce crime and to keep us safer. We all want to be safe and we all deserve to be safe. And again, looking in history, back when I was in college, I remember learning that Even the great philosopher Plato was unable to come up with an objective definition of justice. There are so many cultural and economic variables. All we have is our own perspectives from yours and perhaps what you've learned from the Institute. How well is the massive system of punishment working to cut down crime? I mean, it's a disincentive. You know, if you do this crime, you're going to have to do the time. Are there effective alternatives to heavy-handed police presence? And if so, like what? I guess you talked about them a little bit, but perhaps you can go on. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the massive system is punishment is working. Um, You know, the U.S. has like the biggest incarceration rate of any country in the world, but we don't have the lowest crime rate. Um, And, you know, in Chicago, they have 
the most police per like a thousand people out of any city in this country. And they're far from the safest city in this country. So I think, uh, you know, the most effective alternative to heavy handed police presence is community presence. And that means investing in the community, like from a young age, empowering people, nurturing people, giving them every resource we have so that they can reach their fullest potential. And I, I wonder if some people could say, oh, that's just unrealistic. You're just being soft on crime and molly coddling the the offenders. I mean, you know, but I, I, I don't, I mean, for example, the war on drugs deals with the uh, supply, but if you don't deal with the demand, you get nowhere. And so uh, I just, I just wonder how much we have at, up until this point really looked at what causes people to be violent? What causes people to do these uh, bad things? And, you know, there, there's not nothing to be learned there. There's a lot to be learned there about, you know, people's psychology and about conditions. And, you know, what we're doing now ain't working. <laughs> and I've, I've always been surprised at how municipal and even state budgets just seem to rubber stamp increases in the police budget. They, they go over with a fine-tooth comb, everything else, but the police budget, oh, no. Uh, I, I wonder why it is that city councils and mayors are so cowed by requests for police budget increases. What are your thoughts on that, Loretta? Um, well, I think that um, when it comes to police, politicians want to be seen as tough on crime. Right. So they're resistant to decreasing police spending. And I think that there's also this idea that like reforms are a solution to police brutality. And those reforms are often used to justify the increase of police budgets. So, um, you know, right now in Chicago, um, well, actually, okay. So in 2013 in Chicago, the city closed down 50 public schools. 30,000 students were impacted. 90% of them were black. Um, And previously, between 2001 and 2013, they closed 100 schools. Parents were literally going on hunger strike for new schools to be built. And um, even as all that's happening, the mayor of Chicago is doing things like approving plans for the construction of a $95 million training academy for cops. And this is under, you know, the banner of reform. The banner of reform. Yeah, that can hide a lot of things. And in recent days, there's this new ad. I don't know if it's playing in your part of the woods, but it's a new ad from Donald Trump. And I'll see if I can get it to uh, play. You have reached the 911 police emergency line. Due to defunding of the police department, we're sorry, but no one is here to take your call. If you're calling to report a rape, please press 1. To report a murder, press 2. To report a home invasion, press 3. For all other crimes, leave your name and number, and someone will get back to you. Our estimated wait time is currently 5 days. Goodbye. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. So, of course... Ginning up fear works. We know it works. It's simple and emotional. But as Mencken said, H.L. Mencken said, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. A lot of uh, avoidable troubles have been caused by too quickly reactive calling 911 that that ad uh, uh, uses. And it's obviously there to, to make people afraid. 
what are proven alternatives to relying on 911? I remember many years ago, well, if you don't like police, call a hippie. You know, <laughs> that's a very long time ago. But what, what proven alternatives are there to relying on 911? How have police reacted when the Institute's director, Chris Patterson, proposed alternatives? How have the police reacted? Um, yeah, so in areas where there's street outreach, which is um, like usually cities with high rates of gun violence, uh, the, these outreach workers encourage people to call them first before they call the police. And, you know, that means maybe situations where someone's standing on your stoop and you want them to leave or a noise complaint or an issue over money or maybe like an argument escalating that could become violent call the outreach workers first. And um, the Institute's Chris Patterson, uh, who works with Nonviolent Chicago, he says, um, you know, he often tells people this in front of the police and the police agree with him Mm. because it makes their jobs easier. And I think, um, you know, we need to have an option like this, um, you know, across the board. I think when we defund the police, we need to implement alternatives like this everywhere, not just in places with high gun violence rates. Because I think a common thread in a lot of these police brutality cases is that uh, people are losing their lives over like totally mundane incidents where if the police hadn't been called, they would be alive. And so uh, by reducing like unnecessary police interactions with civilians, um, you know, I, I really think that it saves lives. That's true. Nobody wants to be shot including cops and they're especially uh you know they put themselves out there and so that's why uh, people react so strongly when when cops are killed and the cops themselves you know a cop killer forget it you're in you know they're going to find you and they're going to take care of it so the idea of protecting the police interesting of course they're going to welcome it you know why, why put them in this dangerous situation and no doubt everyone has done things in their lives that they come to regret. When people see shootings and violent crime on TV, the perpetrators are often seen just as bad people, monsters even. Your reaction, is there really an alternative to dealing with such people? You know, on a fairly quick basis when, you know, like if a crime is occurring, how how can, what, what about this picturing people as bad people? Uh, and and monsters. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's um, sort of like a really purposeful narrative that's been used to manipulate this country for a really long time and used as a tool to like gain power in you know so many political campaigns. Uh, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, people being referred to like as super predators and thugs. Oh right. Um, but the truth is, I mean, if we want to combat violence, we need to realize that people involved in violence are human. And um, I think uh, one w- when I was interviewing one of the workers for Nonviolent Chicago, he said something that I think is really critical. He said whether they're the person being shot or the person doing the shooting, at the end of the day, they're both victims of something. So people who commit street violence, um, you know, let's look at them through the lens of often they're victims of centuries of like intergenerational trauma and Mm. poverty and mental illness and racism. And they come from communities often that have been, you know, disinvested in or like terrorized by police for decades. And so 
if we want to combat street violence, I think the answer isn't to demonize them, but to, to provide them with more resources and care and also to um, combat institutional violence, which is much more deadly. Well, what do you mean by institutional violence? Is it just, you know, police violence or, or what other? Um, Go ahead. I think like by institutional violence, I mean, uh, you know, policies that create poverty and keep people in poverty and make it hard for them to get housing and um, policies that maybe lock people up for these low level drug crimes and then separate them from their children and now their children grow up like without a father. Yeah, that would be institutional violence. I think people <laughs> can understand that. What yeah. about what about gangs? I mean, ever since, you know, I was a kid in West Side Story, you know, there've been gangs that people are afraid of, gang violence and, you know, various different clubs that happen generally in impoverished areas, I think if not exclusively. Recently there were some 15 people shot at a funeral of a gang member, I believe it was in Chicago. And of course, mm-hmm. higher level organized crime also employs revenge as opposed to justice. What, what works with gangs and even with the uh, uh, organized crime, if not police presence? How can such revenge-stoked problems be more effectively dealt with when poli- if, pe- if police are defunded? Um, yeah, so I actually just saw a video of the one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter um, in Chicago who pointed out you know, at that funeral where 15 people got shot, there was like a huge police presence and uh, the shooting still happened and nothing was really done to stop it. So um, I think that the police don't always keep us safe in the way that we've been told that they do. Um, Also, a lot of nonviolent Chicago staff um, are former gang members. They are people who have Uh been formerly incarcerated. And so a huge part of what they do is discourage retaliation. Um, you know, after a shooting, they're there on the shoot on the street corner, like uh, diffusing tensions and comforting people. And also after a shooting takes place, um, they'll like send someone to the hospital to visit the victim. And, uh, you know, as people are bleeding, they'll sit by the bedside and say, like, look, if you don't change your path, you're going to end up dead or in jail. And um, people welcome that because a lot of them have gone their whole lives and like never really spoken about their trauma. Mm. And so I think it's really important to reach out to victims of the shooting and also perpetrators and be there for them, not just in the moment, but to build and maintain a relationship with them. Because I don't think that retaliation is going to happen. Uh, ending it is going to happen from police just standing outside of a funeral home. Yeah. I'm reminded of so many things. There was a, uh, I, I wish I could think of his name, a man whose daughter was one of the many people killed in the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1995. And at first he wanted revenge. He wanted to go out and uh, kill the person who killed his daughter. But mm-hmm. after a while, he turned to uh, being uh, very much against revenge, against the death penalty because it doesn't solve anything. It just continues the cycle of violence and killing. And again, you know, it's not, there's a complex problem and a simple solution isn't going to do it. How, how is the Institute funded? Do they, 
I mean, police get a lot of funding from uh, the municipalities, but what about the uh, the Institute uh, for Waging Non or for Nonviolent Chicago? I mean, people, you know, it's nice that people do stuff for free, but going out there into the street after you know a gang war, uh, sometimes you may have to compensate people for that. What about that? Yeah. So. Um... Chicago does have um, in their budget money for street outreach like that. No good. Um, yeah, so it's like eleven point five million dollars, and that's for all street outreach in the city, not just nonviolent Chicago. Um, and I think they also get a lot of money from like uh, like private sure. donors and companies. Yeah. Yeah, philanthropies, uh, and I have no idea what the police budget is in in the big cities, but it's a lot of money. I know that. Yeah, in in Chicago, it's two point forty five billion. So two point forty five billion than, than the street outreach. Um, wow. Budget, yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's a, a city near me that has I think around twenty five thousand uh, people, and like three hundred cops. It just seems like. What? Wow. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know about this. So it's $2.5 billion? Is that what you said? In uh, Chicago? Um, or something like that? Yeah, I believe it's $2.45 billion. Oh. oh, well then. <laughs> I think that's including um, overtime. Sure. Also. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, once, of course, you know, part of the problem is what happens after violence. Once criminals are put behind bars, they're oftentimes forgot about. Uh, your article points out that, that victims, too, are forgotten. They, they keep that pain of the trauma. Now, I think I've heard of restorative justice. What does that mean? And what about, you know, the, the uh, uh, cycle with, uh, with victims of violence? What about restorative justice? What is that? What might it mean for the victim and the perpetrator, perhaps? Mm-hmm. So um, restorative justice kind of focuses on like addressing the harm that crime causes to people instead of just simply punishing people. And uh, a lot of it involves like cooperations between like victims and offenders. And um, a lot of times, especially in, you know, gang violence, uh, these people can be, you know, victims of violence and also be perpetrating at the same time. Oh, true. Um, yeah, so it involves like people meeting face to face, expressing their feelings and coming to some kind of solution or closure that can bring healing to both parties. Yeah, I can't imagine there being healing or closure if, okay, the, the perpetrator is, is locked up and caged, but does that really bring closure to either the, the perpetrator or the victim, how can it bring closure? I, I would think, you know, victims' uh, impact statements are one thing, and I think that, you know, was a start, but uh, uh, just, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to get beyond that rather than have people traumatized for the rest of their lives? And they are. They absolutely are. This is happening now. The current system just ain't working real well. If it just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Loretta Graceffo, I should say. Uh, she's written an article published in a few places called Community Peacemakers Offer a Proven Alternative. We're talking about what it means 
the phrase defund police. How scary is it or isn't it? What does it really mean? Uh, Loretta, you write shootings, which have increased due to tensions surrounding the pandemic, continue to rise as the weather gets warmer. One choice we can continue is to just react. Is there a way to figure out the underlying reasons people react this way, how the uh, pandemic may exacerbate it, and what might be done more effectively to address the, the underlying reasons? Why do people turn to violence, especially, I mean, how does the pandemic... I know, having lived in a big city, that police would say when it hits 93 degrees, crime goes up. But uh, why, why do people turn to violence? What does the pandemic contribute to this problem? Um, so one thing that was happening, especially in the beginning, is that uh, people were kind of like, you know, scrambling to figure out, like, outreach workers were sort of trying to figure out how do we, you know, maintain these relationships with people who are at risk that we've you know, been building for years, but also socially distanced. And so there was a little bit of a learning curve on that. And, um, you know, they tried to sort of check in with people over the phone and they came to the conclusion that people really, I mean, conversations like this need to be happening in person. And so, you know, uh, it's really hard to interrupt violence while you're social distancing. Um, But I think also that uh, I think violence is, largely a result of people's needs not being met. And I mean, uh, since the pandemic began, um, you know, communities of color are um, having deaths in these huge numbers. They're suffering financially. Uh, I think the protests have made it pretty clear that the federal government and often their city governments don't really care about them all that much. And so I think that these these conditions kind of create uh, desperation. And so I think to address that, we need to meet people's needs in both psychological and also material ways. Boy, yeah, being seen as uh, somebody expendable, you know, somebody who doesn't really matter, as frankly, the message really is, how can it, how can people not get the message, people who are people of color and there's no question that, that the rates of, uh, of infection from the pandemic are much higher and life is much more difficult if you can't, you know, say, work from home. And a lot of, you know, it's amazing how many issues come back to uh, economic unfairness. And I, I just, I don't know how people can uh, react other than to get a little bit angry that the government is ignoring them. Not all impoverished people turn to crime, of course. But desperation, let's face it, is often at cause. When people serve time in prison and then get out, a tremendous amount of recidivism. People, again, turn to crime. There are very few options out there. Are there specific ways to build a sense of belonging, of everybody being valued, part of a community, or is this just just naive? Uh, I definitely, I don't think it's naive. Um, this reminds me, uh, Rayshard Brooks, we mentioned him earlier. He was killed at Wendy's by the police. Right. He spoke about uh, this before he died. Um, he spoke about like being, uh, he was talking to this group that was focused on fighting incarceration. And he spoke about 
feeling like he was treated like an animal by the criminal justice system and rejected by society. And he was murdered before he ever really had a chance to find the sense of belonging. But um, it's also interesting that you bring up belonging because I think that craving to be a part of something bigger is um, one of the things that attracts people to gangs in the first place. And uh, one of the outreach workers I spoke to said, um, you know, when I was involved in violence, uh, it was because I was looking for love and I found it on the street. And so to prevent recidivism, I think that we need to make sure that at-risk individuals can get this sense of love and belonging elsewhere. And a lot of times I think it's uh, as simple uh, as building relationships, which is what um, Nonviolent Chicago is all about. And I think also one of the beautiful things about street outreach is that it's kind of this reciprocal process. I mean, um, someone from Nonviolent Chicago said, uh, when people are given an opportunity and a purpose, they usually rise to the occasion. And so we see that with uh, former gang members who some of them have served time in prison for murder, and they're now shedding tears when people are killed by gun violence. And they're putting themselves in danger every day to save lives and serve their communities. And, um, you know, they find redemption and uh, belonging through helping other people find redemption. Wow. There's a lot there. That's, it's, it's obviously true. And, and some people, you know, on the right may just dismiss it and say, oh, they're just bad people. But no, there is evidence. There is evidence, as you describe, that when people feel, you know, they have an opportunity, they have a purpose, it encourages people to keep on going on that path. But when they're locked up in a pandemic in their small home with no chance of making any money, uh, what alternatives are there? What alternatives are there? Not a whole heck of a lot of them. And and to tell people, no, you are not valued. <laughs> what is that going to do? What is that going to do? And certainly, and, and you know, the, the police situation right now, um, you know, the police are in charge. They like to, they need to dominate and control. And quite frankly, dominating and controlling, uh, how else, in what other forms is that legitimized not a lot so i I think people need to to think about that would you like to be dominated and controlled uh not a lot of people would but that's that's what they have so far and and the police are at a disadvantage certainly because people don't want to be dominated and controlled they don't want to be herded like sheep uh they want to feel human imagine that and i believe much of the way that martin luther king is perceived in 2020 quite frankly, would shock and upset him. A lot of people get it wrong about who he really was. They, they simplify it. <laughs> Some people have even, uh, I remember, have suggested that he would have supported Ronald Reagan or, or even Donald Trump for them. I mean, it's insane. It's beyond belief, but it's true. Your article cites Martin Luther King. You write, the ultimate vision of nonviolent Chicago is not simply to end the cycle of violence, but to create what King called a beloved community, a fellowship of human beings built on redemption, reconciliation, and radical love, end of quote. To many people, that could sound terribly naive and just romantic. 
what what did he mean by that? What what did it require to have a beloved community, a fellowship of human beings built on redemption, reconciliation, and radical love? Um. So, uh, in his words, he said that this requires both um, a qualitative change in our souls and a qualitative change in our lives. Mm. And um, mm. yeah, so what would this look like in action? I mean, I think it requires uh, looking within and transforming ourselves, but I think it also requires uh, transforming the world we live in. And I think we're we're really far from, uh, you know, having uh, the beloved community that he talked about sure. right now. <laughs> you know, in a truly beloved community, we're not talking like, should we reopen the economy, even though thousands of the most vulnerable people will die? You know, uh, we don't have like 800 military bases in the sure. world, like really? the, in the U- U.S. military bases around the world. Like right. there's not prisons or wealth inequality or white supremacy. And so there's a lot of work to be done to get to that point. But um, I think that defunding the police is a start. And I think that investing in the people um, is really necessary to create a community where people truly feel beloved. It's almost amusing how Trump is, he said, you know, many streets in America are worse than Afghanistan. And how, if you think about how effective our military all over the world is they come from outside they don't know the neighborhood they don't know the community they impose violence uh how well is that helping american interests i you know if you can't i mean to come in from the outside and and dominate and control with violence with the ability to use violence with the justification of violence uh as as Rocky once said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. It just doesn't. You're too young to remember that. Uh, you know, and clearly people from outside a community cannot have the same impact as, as locals and neighbors. And we've talked a little bit about street outreach. How important is street outreach, do you think? Do you think city budgets are starting to recognize the value or is it still kind of spotty? What do you think? Um, I think... Well, you mentioned it's interesting you bring up the military because I think uh, one thing that kind of goes unsaid in these discussions about defunding the police is let's also defund the military. And also, um, you know, why is the police sort of acting as like an occupying army in many of these places? Um, They in a lot of places use sort of these techniques that they've picked up from the army, uh, like stop and frisk is very similar to army techniques, the surveillance of Muslims. Um, in the past, in Chicago, torture has been used to get confessions. This is like we're talking about, I think, like the 70s through like the 90s. Um, and the military also gives police departments like billions of dollars of equipment and they're required to use it within a year. Um, so I think, you know, like you said, uh, fr- when when you're trying to fight crime from outside of the community, uh, treating it like a war yeah. it doesn't have the same impact as people who are inside the community. Um, and I think the message from the city budget is that they're more invested in punishment than uh, 
rehabilitation by and for the community. Um, so I think I think there is a street outreach budget, but I think it it definitely needs to be increased in most places. Well, we got to prioritize it. That's what we're talking about here: changing changing values. I mean, you know, your home budget shows what your values are. No question about it. If you can, you know, what what you do with your uh, you know expendable resources, if you have any, which a lot of people don't. Now, we the world, I think, has been shocked by the open exercise of apparent tyranny on the streets of Portland, Oregon. You know, secret police, unmarked police. As I said, Trump said it was worse than Afghanistan. Clearly, the armed secret police in Portland and who knows where else, clearly they're causing more violence. No question about it. From your knowledge and experience, how rare is it that police actually have the effect of increasing violence? Um, I think it's pretty common that police increase violence Certainly at protests, I mean, you know, we've all seen the videos, even not the secret police, but just the city police just tear gassing people at random, plowing into protesters with their cars. Um, you know, that video of them pushing down that elderly activist. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. But I think uh, we also need to remember that this violence um, that we're seeing in Portland from the secret police isn't really new. I mean, hmm. in Immigrant communities, like undocumented communities, have pointed out that, you know, getting snatched off the streets by law enforcement, ICE agents, it's really a day-to-day -day reality for them. And um, in places like Chicago, for example, uh, there's this secret interrogation site called Home and Square, and people huh. are ahead. taken there after... Oh, uh, what? Go ahead. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh -oh. Yeah, people are taken there uh, after they get arrested. It's pretty much off the books. They maybe stay there for a few days. They often face abuses there, and uh, their lawyers and their families can't track them at all while they're there. Oh uh, so I think that this kind of violence that we're seeing from the secret police um, has been kind of the rule and not the exception. Mm. I've been around a lot of years. I never thought I'd see the day. But... Here we are. And that frightening invasion of the secret federal police on the streets of Portland, Oregon, these, these were homeland security troops. Uh, that department was established, you know, in the wake of 9-11. Uh, and I often thought, homeland security? Whoa, that sounds a little bit uh, police statish to me. But that was, they knew what they were doing. So Homeland Security has sent a lot of surplus military equipment, including tanks, to local police, resulting in a dramatic militarization of police. Does, doing that seems like an unusual new policy. How did we get to this new way of seeing police? And what about the effect of you know, transferring surplus military equipment to our local police forces? I mean, I think it certainly creates... Um you know, a feeling among residents that, I mean, when someone has a tank or, you know, grenades or machine guns, you don't really feel like uh, they're on your side at all. And I think uh, it's taken us a while to get to this point. Um, one of the things that helped get us there is uh, in the 80s, um, Joe Biden worked with uh, Strom. Thurman to oh, create great. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, to create uh, this uh, bill that ex- expanded civil asset forfeiture, which allows police to um, basically, if they believe that uh, someone's property is being used like within a crime, so it could be like a gun or a car or even a house, maybe where they say that someone's dealing drugs, they're allowed to seize it. And then uh, without the person being charged and then this money goes to the police departments and a lot of it has been used to purchase more military equipment, for example, uh, tanks that were used in Ferguson. And so I think a lot of this, um, (laughs) it goes like much deeper than we realize in how long that this has been building. Yeah, I had not put the uh, the confiscation of, of cars and homes and things that I've, I've, I have seen and known about for many years. It's awful. Even if you're not convicted, they keep your stuff. And what message does that give people? How you know? It's amazing to me that they've been able to get away with that. And I had not thought about them using that money to buy more military equipment to make war on American streets. Brilliant strategy. Huh. What about... <laughs> Settlements, legal settlements of increasingly common lawsuits over police brutality. I I understand this money usually comes from the general municipal budget. I would think it would be an incentive, perhaps, to cut out the brutality if such uh, settlements of lawsuits came out of the police budget. What do you know about this? Um, Yeah, I don't think that this gets talked about enough because the numbers are really... They're honestly just crazy. I mean, in Chicago, uh, over the course of, I think, 12 years, the city spent half a billion dollars on brutality settlements. All of this money comes from taxpayers. And uh, sometimes cities can't even afford to pay these settlements. And so they borrow money using bonds. And what these bonds do is basically transfer wealth from uh, communities of color, which are usually... Uh, where police abuses take place. And now this money is going to banks and like rich investors and um, the rich are getting richer. And so not only is that terrible, also a lot of times the settlement money kind of functions like hush money. And so, yeah, for example, uh, say someone is in police custody uh, and maybe a officer like uses force inappropriately mm-hmm. and the city offers you thousands of dollars to keep quiet about it. Um, most of the time, these people are not in a financial position to say no to this money. Mm. And so now um, they're given this money from taxpayers and it has the effect that now the police officer involved faces no consequences and he can keep his job. And so the cycle of brutality continues. Oh, terrific. <laughs> Paying for the cycle of brutality to continue. That's just, oh my gosh, and, and just not resolving anything. Well, we've heard about police reform, such as body cameras, better training. What does this usually mean? And d- does it affect the real problem, or is it a Band-Aid on the, on the bigger problem? This, this kind of police reform that currently passes for addressing the problem. Um, I think it is a Band-Aid because, you know, uh, not that cameras or training are bad. I mean, they sound good until 
the I think the problem is that politicians use these things to justify an increase in police budgets. And that usually leads to like an extension in police presence in neighborhoods. Uh, of course, of course, more of the same. Mm-hmm. Well, um, go ahead. Oh, we see this now. Uh, Joe Biden wants to give police additional three hundred million. Oh, yeah, I and I think uh, focusing on reform also kind of misses the point on what police violence is. You know, it's violent when police murder people, but it's also violent uh, when um, you know they have so much money and public health services and schools are being cut. And so the only way to combat that kind of violence is by defunding police and investing in people. And and as you say, that reform kind of misses the point because, I mean, for example, not uh, I mean, protecting police budgets from, from lawsuits, that clearly uh, kind of justifies and enables more police brutality if they're protected and don't have to really do anything about it. That I had not thought about that. Well, a lot of people haven't thought about a lot of things until this this moment in time, the glorious year 2020. This is a historic moment. And do you think, are people getting what defunding the police means? I mean, Trump has obviously jumped on it to provoke more reactive fear. Or do you think there's more consideration? In other words, are you optimistic? <laughs> what, what, what do you think? Are people getting defunding police or, or is it? still kind of scaring people because people don't understand. They react rather quickly to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people's consciousness is rising. And I think I think that people are uh, coming together in solidarity more than I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and understanding that the liberation of all people is connected. So I feel, I definitely feel um, optimistic about people, maybe not so much politicians, mm. but I think we're headed in a, Good direction. I, we still have a long way to go. <laughs> so what can people do? People, you know, in Chicago, but all over the country. I mean, this, this show plays on a bunch of different stations uh, in different parts of the country. What can people do if they want to move forward with uh, changing the budgets, defunding police? What, what are suggestions may might you have? Um, I think that a lot of times in conversations about uh you know defunding the police it's not really clear uh where their funding is coming from or you know who's in charge of these decisions on uh city council so i think a really important thing to do is um you know local politics are often kind of difficult to get into for a lot of people because uh on the surface they're just not as interesting. As, yeah. like, <laughs> but I think it's really important for people to get involved in local politics. I think almost probably more important than even federal politics is mm-hmm. to know who is making these decisions, who's, uh, you know, defending these police and courts and um, making it clear to them that they will not be elected or given political power if they don't follow the demands of the people. Yeah, and I'll tell you from my own observation, when people do get involved and actually accomplish things, it's kind of fun. You want to do it again. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Loretta Grisefo, thank you so much for being with us today, and I uh, appreciate uh, your research, your work, and your sense of optimism for the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Generation. 